0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, the president of Chatham University and the host of the Higher Ed Channel on the New Books Network. I'm here today with with a friend and colleague, Nathan Long, who is the president of Saybrook University out in California. Nathan, great to have you on the podcast.
1: Great to be here, David. Thank you.
0: Could could you start out by just sharing a little bit about your own background? Where where did you grow up? Where did you go to school?
1: Absolutely. So, I grew up in rural Northwest Ohio. Uh so I was uh born and raised in uh, towns that were probably too small to know uh, for most people, but Bryan, Ohio and Defiance, uh, there's a famous book called The Prize Winner of Defiance, Ohio, so that's I think the only claim to fame we have there. Um, And then uh, the rest of my time was in a a city called Lima. I was uh, a son of two fabulous parents, one executive secretary for a mayor. And my dad was a social worker, uh, lots of service in the family and uh, headed off to college. Um, One of the things that I've often said is my pursuit of music. Music performance was uh, very very much an important aspect of who I was, especially in high school and college, and it saved my life in many respects because I had experienced a lot of turmoil and tumult, I think, as a lot of teenagers do, and having that outlet and the network I had with uh, music educators was just really profoundly important in my life. And so finished up at University of Kentucky, started pursuing a master's in music performance uh, at a conservatory, and did a complete 180, where I I got involved with residential life housing as part of a grad TA ship or te- you know teaching assistantship slash uh, scholarship award that was provided uh, as part of my package, and I fell in love with the fact that I was able to work with and counsel college students, and working to keep them in school, keep them in housing, support them in the their their life journey. And the more and more I immerse myself in that environment, the more I realized that the solitary life of a musician was not for me. Um, Loved it, was having success at it. But at the end of the day, I really enjoyed uh, helping others, supporting others in in their educational journey. So uh, switched master's programs, got a doctorate uh, focused in educational research and systems. Um, from the University of Cincinnati. And then uh, my first gig out of there, so the real quick and dirty, I went to Arizona State for a faculty associateship and uh, another housing piece. So it's kind of a dual role. And I got a call to serve as uh, a dean of general education and liberal studies at a small uh, nonprofit private college in Cincinnati, a health sciences college, actually. And this the President at the time said, okay, this is going to be a wild shift for you. If you're interested, I'd love for you to come out. And you're you know, you're going to be coming from a 70,000-student oh, university campus with lots of opportunity there to a 300-student campus, um, and there's probably not a whole lot of growth opportunity that would happen. Um, but you get to create and build your own liberal arts program within a college of nursing and health sciences. And I thought that was just absolutely fascinating. And she gave me carte blanche to hire the best faculty I could find. And, you you know, David, like if anyone, any president says, I'll give you X amount of money to do this. You're like, I'll take it. Like, <laughs> we're, we're all over it. Um, so I hired some really amazing faculty, and we just had a fabulous ride getting things started. She ended up retiring uh, fairly suddenly uh, in 2010, and the board reached out to me as I was the chief academic officer as well and asked if I'd serve in the interim role as president there. And we, by that time, we had grown to just a little bit shy of 500 students or so. And uh, took it on and realized that uh, I loved working as a college president. I was in an interim role, and the board and I clicked, and we set out on a journey. And uh, lo and behold, after about four years, a recruiter came a-calling and said they had this uh, two great institutions for me to look at. Uh, but I glommed right on to Saybrook University, and Saybrook had... Uh, has a pretty storied history in terms of its legacy, its mission, uh, really superstar faculty uh, across the board, uh, you know, from Rollo May to Abraham Maslow to Carl Rogers, some of the big names. Uh, and of course, I was in peace studies as a cognate area for my doctoral work. So Johan Galtung was teaching at Saybrook at the time when I was looking. So it was a natural fit, fell in love. The board and I got along like uh, butter on bread, if you will. And uh, <laughs> Um, and the rest is history. So I've been here about eight years and looking forward to, to more as we, we sort of lean into the second strategic plan. So I, that's the quick and dirty of it all. So. Uh,
0: well, that's a, an awesome summary of your journey. For For those who are not familiar with it, it, it Saybrook it, it is a really unusual institution. So not founded till the 70s, but with this all-star faculty. can Can you say a little more about how it came about and sort of how it evolved before you got there?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. So Saybrook was really a concept that was born in the 60s. So uh, the the individuals I mentioned, uh, you know, Rollo May and Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow, along with a bunch of other luminary psychologists came together in a place called Old Saybrook, Connecticut. You you get the connection right now. So uh, in 1964 and said, hey, you know, there's an opportunity for us to really rethink how education's delivered, what Humanistic psychology was just coming up. It's called the third force in psychology. And out of that was born the Humanistic Psychology Institute movement. And so there were 50 or 60 or so across the country. Duquesne University in your neck of the woods was one of the first out there to have an HPI, as they called it. Um, Some of the larger state institutions had these as sort of... Offshoots of the psychology departments, because psychology departments weren't necessarily embracing humanistic psychology. It was really rooted in psycho dynamism and uh, you know psychometrics and and all that. And what the humanistic ethos is really focused on, you know, understanding human beings within their context and understanding the human experience and its totality and how you you know work with clients or communities to actualize their best potential. Uh, and and go and journey with them as opposed to having like a clinician or therapist say, this is what you need to do to get better. It's, it's working collaboratively. And so that was sort of the heart and soul of the humanistic mindset and of these institutes. As psychology started to embrace humanistic principles and psychology, these institutes started fading away. But a couple kind of held on. You know, there's one in Michigan, there's one in Massachusetts, and Saybrook, of course, was born in 1971 after Eleanor Criswell, our first uh, executive director president, uh, really uh, put a a stake in the ground with her husband, Thomas Hanna, and uh, brought these, you know, luminaries into the fold of Saybrook. And uh, then they started teaching uh, either full or part-time. And you know, to your point, Saybrook is also unique in the sense that we were one of the first pioneers in distance education, and uh, you know, leveraging what we would call the national or residential conference. So you see that happening across the uh, industry right now. Uh, but we were the first, or one of the first, out there that w- uh, that was doing it and and really having success with it. Very small boutique institution for many years, but those those kind of high. Volume, high powered faculty members really gave Saybrook the heft that a lot of these other institutions didn't have. So you had Ivy Leaguers and elite private uh, uh, institutional faculty serving on faculty at Saybrook. Um, And our early alumni include some really famous authors, including Richard Tarnas, who wrote The Passion of the Western Mind as his dissertation, and it continues to be a staple in college and universities uh, across the country, amongst many others. So um, that was the idea. We've modified that, of course, today. So Saybrook was, uh, at the time, one program in psychology and another program in human sciences. Uh, and the psychology was fully just research. So there's no clinical component to it, anything like that. Today, we're at about 26 programs across the board with, with our strongest in the clinical areas of counseling and psychology. And we apply those humanistic principles across every single program. So the uniqueness of that is that our mission and our, our philosophy uh, really holds true. And we're predominantly virtual. So we have very limited on-ground Uh, A limited on-ground footprint, Um, and I think you know it's been a real, a real win for us. I think for students who are seeking out uh, the flexibility, but also the rigorous uh, graduate education that they hope to get, and and then get gain employment for after they've uh, graduated.
0: And is the I I believe that the initial focus there was very much on the adult learner, the professionals um, to, to have this. Has that continued? Is it all at the graduate level? Is it a mix of grad and undergrad?
1: Yeah, we have no undergraduate uh, students, uh, and and have not uh, in our fifty-two years. Uh, so it's all been predominantly at that uh, uh, adult. Uh, I would call them traditional learners at this point, right? So for the right. graduate yeah. school level, yeah, yeah. <laughs> non-traditionals
0: probably not not the right word when they're more than half of everybody in the
1: system. That, right? That's right, and we have um, our average age this year. I think it's it's come down just a little bit, but we average right around 41 years of age on average. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, that has kind of held within that zone. So we get a lot of folks who are, um, you know, second and third career who are looking to not only upskill, but find purpose. We, we have so many students that come to Saybrook based on the institutional mission. Um, and I I think you probably agree um, that most individuals looking for grab programs aren't looking at the institution's mission. I I, I know I wasn't. I, I was looking at the program. Um, but here they're they're really largely interested in, wow, this humanistic social justice focused mission that is out to support folks who want to advance change.
0: Well and I think that in some ways as you, you describe the evolution right is because the pro, all of the programs you've you've evolved have that central common thread right in terms of what they're about they may be in different disciplines but they share that so the the mission is really pretty front and center right in the educational
1: model that's right that's right yeah yeah absolutely so,
0: so tell us where was Saybrook when you got there in terms of enrollment in terms of the finances and how did you go about formulating that first strategic plan
1: oh it, this could go on for three hours, but I'll try. Okay. And well, we
0: don't have three hours. So I need yeah, no. the I need the summary version.
1: <laughs> we'll keep it to five five minutes or less. Um, so, when I came to Saybrook in 2014, there were a couple things that it, it had happened, but I'll give you sort of the high level marks of what was happening right before. So. Back in 2008, a lot of institutions were reeling from the recession, and that really, that ripple effect through 2014 was pretty fierce for smaller institutions. Uh, The for-profits were coming into major play, and you saw them sort of skim, I don't mean this derogatorily, but they were skimming off the... more traditional. Taking a lot of
0: the adult learner, the, what what had been Saybrook's core, yeah, right?
1: That's yeah. right? That's right. That's yeah. right. And w- what was happening is we were seeing major enrollment drops for those that six year period, massive deficits. Um, and you know, of course, I think a lot of smaller institutions we we tend to uh, over hire and have a lot of staff for fewer students because we, you know, it's a lot of infrastructure sometimes that, that may or may not be needed. Um, so when I got into the seat in August of 2014, um, you know, the, the situation we were staring at, staring down, actually, was a, about a $3 million deficit. Um, you know, the, there was a prospect that Saybrook might not be able to make it in 18 months if we didn't do some radical adjustments and changes. Um, you know, we had, you know, a continued decline in enrollments and, and the like. Um, thankfully. Parallel to this process of me being hired by the original Saybrook board, TCS education system in Saybrook had just penned, signed off on a memorandum of understanding and had solidified their relationship, our relationship, uh, such that um, TCS provides essentially their third-party service provider. So not an OPM necessarily, but more of a, a full service provider from everything from HR services, financial packaging, financial aid packaging, HR, etc. Um, so that really gave me a lot of, uh, I won't sing it, but wind beneath my wings to, you know, say, okay, I've got some leverage here that I can really maximize uh, and and really right-size Saybrook and get us right on, on track. So, With TCS's help and with the help of uh, some of my core staff and cabinet, we were able over the first two years to, we actually, uh, I mean, it's a win when you can reduce the deficit by half. So we had a a deficit of one and a half million the following year, 300000 And then every year since really 2016, we have been surplus oriented and for the uninitiated, uh, nonprofits don't necessarily declare a profit; they declare a surplus or a deficit. Um, and contrary to popular belief, nonprofits do not need to function at a deficit. So the idea is that you're operating in good business practice. If you're, you know, pulling a surplus, you're able to reinvest that towards the mission, the faculty, the staff, students, uh, to support the overall mission and the learning and teaching that happens at the institution. So. Uh, This past year, we just uh, celebrated um, uh, one of our largest enrollment classes this fall. We'll have over a 1,000 students for the first time in our history. And when I came in, enrollment was right around 450. So uh, we've over doubled the institution in that time and uh, really excited to see that. Our faculty is growing. We've got a lot of of great, great marker points. This fall has been a little challenging on enrollment because I think as we come out of COVID, Saybrook had the we had the opposite effect that a lot of institutions uh, had where they were losing students. We we gained a lot of students during COVID. Um, so now I think we're seeing sort of a, a level setting here, but uh, all in all, we're still very healthy and looking forward to a good future, so. That's
0: great. I'd like to just follow up on a couple of things there. So uh, you mentioned that you know at your prior school where you had added the liberal arts to the nursing, you'd been able to have pretty significant growth What was it that attracted you to come to Saybrook with a $3 million deficit? I'm assuming as a pretty new institution, it didn't have, a a, you know, running a $3 million deficit if you're Harvard is no big deal, right? It's rounding error on your interest, but if you don't have a big endowment, there isn't really anything else to cover those deficits, right? So so, uh, just curious your thought process in sort of making that leap when you know, if you weren't able to write the ship that quickly, you know, you might not have had a job in a few years.
1: That's right. Well, that's a very fair question. Um, so when when I was at the uh, Christ College in Cincinnati, we in the four years that I was president, first year or so, um, we had to do basically a turnaround plan because there were some major financial issues and and strains on the institution along with you know, for example, how tuition was, you know, being applied, how, you know, various things were happening in terms of teaching and learning. So I had this first, uh, I guess you'd call it dip into the turnaround experience, right? And I also had a couple mentors who were presidents who um, had, you know, worked in turnaround type environments. And, you know, I think, the the advantage to that is when you come in and if you're able to really do quick analysis and make the right adjustments it can be a real rewarding experience and you're going to crack a few eggs unfortunately in that process but that in and of itself can be very very rewarding the flip side to that is turnaround presidents don't typically last very long they they have to you know pack their bags and get out of dodge they typically people.
0: come in and make those omelets and then find <laughs> somewhere else to turn around right that's
1: right that's right yeah. that's right and and the cheese gets stinky on that omelet i think real fast so um but I, you know, listen. I think for me, what was appealing to go to Saybrook was it was a, a an institution and a mission. And I won't say I did it all on my own, right? I mean, but it was an institution and mission worth saving if we could do it. And there, to your point, there wasn't a guarantee that it would all end up rosy at the end of the day, right? There never is, and and yeah, it's one thing you learn in life. So, you know, my passion for the mission, our team's passion to really get a and and frankly. A, a fabulous board. You know, and that's what inspired me is when the board said, We've got your back in these changes that you have to make and we will take care of you in this process, you you know you've got a, a good situation or and it, at best you can make a bad situation you know better, uh, with the support of a, a really great board. So um, I would say that that was my rationale for for making the leap and and the jump. And I'm proud to say too that um, you know both colleges now I think are on really sound solid footing. And and not just because you know I think you and I are both cut from the same cloth. It, we don't do it all. I mean, there's a, a you know tens to hundreds of people that are working there tails off to get things right. And um, we're very fortunate to have the teams we have.
0: So I'm curious, you know, for those listeners who aren't familiar with TCS education system, I've had a chance in getting to know you to also get to know its founder, Michael Horowitz. And it's unusual, right? There, There are very few nonprofit college separately accredited systems of higher ed in the US. And TCS is one of them and obviously has been very successful. Um, Could you say a little bit more about that model? Because as you described, that was sort of happening in parallel with you joining. So I know some of the early discussions on Saybrook joining, you weren't, I'm assuming, fully a part of those, but must have come in as it was unfolding. What was the rationale from the Saybrook side? Because one of the things, as as I understand the model that was important is it, it is quite distinct from an opium because effectively you're becoming an affiliate or a part of a system where there's a governing board above it. So it's really making a decision to be part of that system rather than an independent institution. So it's a big, big decision for a board to make.
1: It is. I think the, the yeah, kind of just slightly revise a little bit of what you just said. The, the reason Saybrook's board joined TCS was largely because the institution retained its independence. So you have a sole member structure, and, and the complications of this, you know, I won't get into that too much, but for those interested, it, TCS is is essentially what the IRS calls a type two supporting entity. So it serves as a sole member. Um, similar structures include like University of California system, Cal State, the North Carolina system, any Catholic uh, system of colleges, you know, very much a sole member. And they have varying degrees of of control, of obligations uh, to the institutions and vice versa. What was really appealing for Saybrook is that we retained all the elements of our independence uh, while also through a payment of an allocation received some really first-in-class services uh, across the board. And so I would say that that was really front and center what you can do. And so so you you know, as well as the other presidents who might be listening, To have that ability to scale uh, effectively, to have those efficiencies embedded, uh, you know, within the system so that you're not necessarily having to hire a whole marketing team, for example, which we don't. We have a person dedicated to liaise with the marketing team is a huge difference. Prior to, to, as a good example, Saybrook had, you know, at least 10, if not more, marketing, PR, and communications people prior to joining Uh, we have none now at this point. They're all housed at the system level. Now we pay an allocation for that. um, But as an example, that gives us a lot more room and flexibility to put our money towards our academic mission and our faculty and our students, uh, and our staff in other areas that support students in their journey uh, with us during their their time. Um, you know, we have other things. I, uh, I I just pointed this out. I came off of an audit committee meeting with our board yesterday. And we celebrated, uh, I think it's our ninth year of clean audits. Not a single finding, everything was ship shape. Um, Prior to that, Saybrook had myriad findings in their audit reports. Um, having a controller at the system level who's, you know, you know working with me and working with our team to ensure sound, good ethical business practices and make, keeping the books right. It's not sexy, but it's important, right, to make sure that the student dollar is stewarded appropriately uh, is a big win. So those are a couple examples. IT is a big one. So our IT infrastructure, for example, we that's all covered at the system level. I can go anywhere in the country and it's the same IT setup uh, and we have IT support housed there. uh, And it's been a real pleasure not to have to worry about server rooms, cybersecurity. I mean, we, we worry about that. We work together as presidents to talk through any sticky issues, but certainly um, having those locally, uh, you know, it can be really taxing I think for any institution, both financially and from a, psychological perspective. So I don't know, does that help answer your question?
0: I think so. I mean, I guess one sort of simplified way I think of it is what it what this means is that the folks who are actually at Saybrook, who are your employees, are all the folks who are directly focused on the interactions with the students and their education. And all of the back office functions, or pretty much all of those, as well as much of the much of the enrollment management and marketing pieces, there's some partnership there, obviously, are handled centrally, which is, I think, different than many of the other systems you described. Right, most of the Catholic institutions or the UCs or the Cal States, they all have, they have some of it at the center, but they all have all of that that's at right. the campuses, right?
1: You know, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and and I think part of what Michael Horowitz, is Dr. Horowitz's vision, is is actually you know I think cutting edge in the sense that you know by not having to staff that at every level, it's not only just cost savings it, to your point, it's our laser focus on the student experience and student learning, right so that we can do you know we can make improvements, we can get better and focus in that area so we're not continuously distracted or continually distracted in that space. So yeah, I think um, I think you you nailed it right and summarized that absolutely.
0: So beyond the both the the cost saving aspects and the high level of service you're getting through that, um, can you share a little bit about what is the what's the relationship and the governance like between both you and the center and then you and your your fellow uh, college or university presidents that are part of the network? Are there other benefits, say, Brooks getting as being part of that system?
1: Yeah, it's a great, great question. So. The relationship between Saybrook and the system from a, you know, just broad governance perspective, you know, the Saybrook board drives its own business and then any uh, kind of core things we work and push up to the TCS board that are necessary. So we have a few things that we have responsibilities to make sure they approve. So uh, the TCS system board takes care of approving any new trustees that we might bring on board, for example, or if we changed our mission or, uh, structural things that would make a difference. Largely, though, um, you know, many of our trustees across the system and at each institution have some sort of role as a trustee at the system board. So it's more of a, 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 a synergistic relationship, really. And so when you in, in, in the colleges have recruited these trustees, and they're like. We'll have the you know an individual say I'd love to serve on the system board too. So you have that kind of mutual accountability that I think is super healthy. Um, And and I've seen that just uh, evolve over the years with our board in terms of the dialogues we have, the uh, not only the support but the great questions that come about when we're considering big decisions, whether it's a new medical school or uh, putting money down for XYZ project. Uh, it's been really helpful. And the schools are able to really have a great deal of input at, as well. And I would say, too, in, in terms of the, the relationship that I have, for example, um, I'll meet with the major VPs, the chiefs, you know, periodically. I have a, a common meeting with Dr. Horowitz. We, we you know, talk about everything from how things are going to plotting strategy for the future and how Sabro can grow, how TCS can grow with Saybrook and, and externally. Um, and what I have found, and I think some presidents who are used to kind of uh, winging it on their own, right, in terms of not having that resource, I have at my disposal, like this entire executive team at the system that I can pull on for anything. So if I have a problem, if I'm stuck, uh, if we we look at mergers, acquisitions all the time of institutions who are interested in coming to join Saybrook, I have a team there that can help with that and support us in that. It has been absolutely, uh, from my point of view, joyful. <laughs> it's like, you know, my team can rest assured that I'm not going to be pulling them into a million different projects that presidents often get pulled in. I think in terms of uh, the, the, the relationship between the university and, um, you know, the component parts, our teams work collaboratively with each office. So, for example, our admissions team works with the data analytics team very closely at the system office, along with marketing, uh, to fine-tune our enrollment, our lead generation, all those things that are important. And, you know, our, our institutional CFO, good case in point, she's working with our controller and our, CFO, our system CFO to maximize savings and increase revenues and support our faculty and department chairs in, in that process. And the crux of that piece of it is that it 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 doesn't work if everyone's territorial and siloed, right? It just will not work. And so we have really invested a lot of time in cultivating a culture of, and Michael uses the term radical cooperation. I'd say that's that's a fair phrase, right? Um, of really leaning into that experience of, of collaborating with each other uh, and, and doing so in ways that, yeah, there may be you know gaps, there may be issues or challenges, but we're working through those uh, collegially in a way that is mutually supportive. The last thing I'll point out is that the universities, all of the universities in the system, each of the presidents are part of a president's council. And so we meet biweekly uh, and make collective decisions that have system impact um, it, it, with and in relation to uh, the uh, Michael Horowitz's cabinet. So we're working together to identify next steps in global strategy or during COVID, figuring out ways that we could align certain policies that made sense at the local level. That has been um, just a really powerful experience. And and I think covid brought us all together in ways that, uh, and I'm sure it has for a lot of institutions, brought us all together in ways that we would never have imagined. Uh, And the President's Council really grew and blossomed uh, during that period. And and today, I think we found ourselves in a really um, unique and and just collaborative experience. So, um, yeah.
0: That's that's great, and you mentioned in that that one of the things you've looked at in terms of potential growth for Saybrook is merger and acquisition. And that's how, as I understand it, that's how TCS has largely grown since its origins where Michael broke off the Chicago school from the TCS system. It's really been by finding others who wanted to join the system as opposed to more internal growth for the most part. how are you thinking about that? Is that something either for Saybrook or the system that you think we're going to see more of in higher ed? It's it's not historically been something that healthier institutions have done a lot of, but you know with the demographic pressures that we're seeing, that's how almost every other sector of the economy responds when there's overcapacity, right? And so I, I'm just curious how you're thinking of it both for Saybrook and when you have the, the the system coming together, how you're approaching it.
1: Yeah, no, it's a salient question for these times, right? I mean, very much so. So, so 4,000 institutions of higher education, um, a declining student population nationally, I, I, yes. I, I think the answer is yes. There's going to be more of this happening. And there is already a lot of it happening. The I think for, I'll start kind of globally and, and come down to the Saybrook TCS side of things. I think the one thing that we continue to see is that institutions get caught up in, they want to try and keep going until the last possible moment. Unfortunately, what we're finding is that a lot of these institutions, they wait too long to pull the ripcord and and then it's, it's too late. And then they've lost everything, Um, whether it's faculty who are like, absolutely not. We want to retain our, quote unquote, independence to boards who are skeptical uh, of any of these models. I'm not even talking just TCS, but any merger, acquisition, anything. What what saddens me is that we've seen institutions that have immense historical impact in America that have gone away. They are no longer and instead, they have, you know, because of their, uh, you know, hesitancy, which, you know, on one hand, I can understand. Um, and, and the tragedy behind that is it impacts the students, it impacts, I think, the the robustness of higher education in general. Um, yeah. so my, and it, it impacts
0: whole yeah. communities. Yeah. I mean, we, Absolutely. you know, one of the things that led me to start the podcast, we went through that experience with Green Mountain College. You know, they came to Chatham when they were on fumes, because they'd been trying for close to two years to find a partner, and both times they'd nearly got there and it fell apart. And, you know, they, here was a history that an institution even older than Chatham, back to the 1840s, shared mission on sustainability, but, you know, it it, it was too late to think about saving it. And I really worry about that, that, you know, I, I think what I've concluded from looking at these across the sector is the best time to look at this is when your institution is healthy and the hardest time to do it is when your institution is healthy because
1: that's right there
0: isn't the yeah. burning platform for change right
1: that's right that's right. well and in, in a good case in point I, I i can't name the institution yet but we have an institution joining tcs i mean David, they, all their metrics are spot on fabulous. I mean, it, it, you know, Saybrook, I, I would love to have their balance sheet in 2014, right? I mean, they're they they they're running great enrollments. Everything's good. The president there is a visionary and, you know, is saying we're, we could be fine on our own for another 20, 30 years, maybe, um, but why take not only the chance of, you know, losing ground, But also, why not join a system where I'm going to have president colleagues, I'm going to have the ability to, to focus on growth in my own institution, but also work with the other institutions. That individual and I have been talking extensively about how we can partner and share and opportunities for, you know, co-locations and, and, you know, supporting our faculty through unique programming. That's just a great example, to your point, of doing it when you're healthy. And they they had to come back to the table after stepping away back in, you know, a few years ago. Um, but absolutely agree. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate that point of it. And and for those institutions looking into this uh, type of work, I you know, President Feingold's point is absolutely spot on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and do do you do you see any downsides for Saybrook in in having joined the system? Is is there, you know, something people need to think about that to to be wary of, or that's a, a risk there?
1: Yeah, uh, no, you know, listen, I I I think with any relationship, the main thing is is making sure that there's a clarity of expectations and that you're continuously communicating. I, you know, I'm a pretty positive focused guy. So I, you know, where where I need to, if I see a gap, I'm I'm usually working with the teams to fix it. I, I just don't have too much tolerance for drama or, uh, you know, political intrigue, which I think kind of complements all of my colleagues at TCS, right? We're just, let's work through it and figure it out. You know, I think, you know, if Saybrook were to say, go on its own, um, you know, I don't think Saybrook, you know, is in a position to to go, quote unquote, on its own. Like if we were to have to reacquire all these services, et cetera, um, it's a big lift. And, you know, I think the faculty would not realize, they would realize after that, that, you know, for example, that it would be. Way more expenses going into those spaces and a lot less focus on on the student learning experience. And I think a lot of them have come around over the last few years uh, to seeing the 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 benefits and and the opportunities to it. I think if I could just make a, you know a plug on this type of stuff, whatever one chooses to do, if it's a merger into an institution, acquirement, an affiliation like with a TCS, Everyone needs continuous, constant education from the word when you say you're going to start this and transparency to the extent that it's possible. Um, Faculty, you know, deserve that. The students deserve that. But more importantly, you're going to get that buy in early on Um, and you can kick the tires and see where the challenges might be. Right. You know, in terms of what that looks like um, going forward so and I real quick before I forget um, you had asked about TCS and Saybrooks um, you know kind of what we're thinking about in terms of affiliations etc um, I'll, I'll just be very brief on this so TCS uh, we have decided on a strategy that really is looking at we're not desperate for people to join us right so the the idea is is that if we can be supportive and there's a, a, there's a great fit and the institution is feeling, like this is a good fit. The institutions ideally will be healthier uh, coming into the system, similar to this one we just talked about, um, that there is a passion for this type of arrangement and that there's a clarity around that. Mm-hmm. For Saybrook, the merger acquisition piece, we, we've we stepped into this over the last year and a half, two years, and have explored these. I think what we've learned over the past 18 months is that institutions think it's a good idea and then they start realizing all the particulars that are in it and um i think you know w- what we've learned as an institution we're very clear this is what would happen if this occurs like we don't have two presidents. We don't have two CFOs. You know, there's going to be structural changes, that kind of thing. So that everyone's on board with what that would look like. We're very open to it. I think, especially from a, a, a organic growth kind of perspective, if it if it's the right fit and it complements our our growth strategies. But again, uh, we've we've also. Learned that sometimes just focusing on your core is the best way to move. So if there's a something that's unique, it's it, that can be a, a positive fit. Yeah.
0: B- burn a lot of time if folks you know haven't <laughs> haven't thought it all through, right?
1: Yeah. Light the match and put the yeah grease on it. It'll go up real fast. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So so uh, beyond the the you know very impressive growth that you've been able to attain, what what are the accomplishments you're most proud of during your your tenure at Saint Saybrook so far?
1: Hmm. I should have thought about this today before, I, as I was driving. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, you know, I think you know, financials and enrollment aside, I think really leaning into the academic mission in the core, you know, and for us to really have built that back up. Um, we've started, been able to over the last three years to really resource faculty. And, you know, it doesn't sound maybe the sexiest thing in the world, but to us academics in the room, it it's a joy when you see faculty thriving, teaching, um, excited to learn. We we're still working through some, you know, previous year stuff, but, but I, I, I've seen the, the transformation. Um, I had a student come in, and, and it's just a kind of a case example uh, for the point here. Uh, she came to my office last week during the residential conference, and she stopped in and she said, I, I need to apologize to you. I said, why? She goes, I gave you such a hard time for the first three years because I just thought you were trying to dismantle the institution. And she goes, what I am seeing now is so vibrant. And so I I love this institution and what it's become. And to see the students, especially from that time to now, really feeling and living that experience in a positive way, you know, you're not going to have a hundred percent, but you get my point, right? To you, you yeah, get your most, most
0: grad students don't stay an, around long enough for that journey to see that. So that's, that's very right. rewarding. That's right. Yeah.
1: And she is graduating this year. So that was a positive. That's good. That's yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. so I would say the student experience overall to see that have evolved has been really powerful. And the last thing I would say is I've had just um uh, maybe the most joyful part is to hire the most incredible leadership team that I have at present, I, you know, from our vice president for academic affairs to our uh, enrollment services, to our uh, AVP for uh, student affairs, advancement, and and finance and operations. It's, it's perhaps the best team I've ever had the privilege of working alongside. They are just an incredible group of women um, who, you know, make us better every day. And so I, I can walk, if I had to leave tomorrow, that would be it, not a legacy thing so much as just really proud of the fact that we have such a great leadership team. So.
0: That's that's wonderful to hear. Could could you say a little bit about the Presidential Fellows program that you started? That looked like a very interesting uh, initiative. I'd love to hear what underlay that and, and how that's up.
1: Yeah, sure. So, we started that back in 2015, I believe it was the fall of 2015, and it it has been on a hiatus for the last couple, of three, four years, but the Presidential Fellows Program is being uh, reignited this year. And so the, the purpose of that and the idea of it is to bring those who are active in the community, I don't have to have a PhD or master's or have even graduated from college, they have to be doing something incredibly meaningful in the community that is advancing positive social change that is um, creating good uh, for the public, right? And so uh, in some meaningful way, the first group of of fellows that we brought on board uh, were incredible, and they remain incredible because they're still very active, uh, incredible activists, filmmakers. We had an urban farm uh, nonprofit leader who is also an Obama uh, Medal, uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom winner. Uh, you know, just some amazing people who have done in, and continue to do incredible things that support the health and well being of the communities. And so they get a small stipend and affiliation with the university. Uh, and, you know, we feature them at residential experiences uh, online and in person. Uh, with the hope of not only inspiring students, but also creating possibilities of Working together if there's a synergy there uh, within, you know, if it's a research project a student's doing, they can connect with them. So it's the idea of, of really leaning into our community as opposed to, uh, you know, the community leaning into the university. So,
0: and, and is it sounds like for, for the fellows, it's not a major financial thing, is it is it the wanting that community that's drawing them in?
1: It's the community. It's the recognition of their work. I think there's a real, uh, you know, it's nice to have your work recognized, especially when you're working so hard. Um, It's also the opportunity to work alongside or with faculty and and graduate students to say, hey, I've got this problem. Like, can you help me with it? And it's like free consultation, right? (laughs) So, you know, they can work with that. Um, You know, and I've helped a couple uh, individuals recraft their board or figure out how to, do their bylaws in a different way that would maximize outcomes. And and it it's just real synergistic. And there's not a it's not a big thing. It's just pick up the phone call and we're working together and collaborating in that way.
0: That's great. So I wanted to wrap up with just some broader questions about leadership. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm curious as you look back on now having led two different institutions, what experiences you feel have best prepared you for that. And, you know, one thing I think is striking is we, we don't have too many college university presidents who have had significant time in residence life, right? Who who started in that way. And I'm curious to what extent you see that you've been able to draw on that. And more broadly, you mentioned mentors or other things. What things do you think have, have helped you to be effective in this role?
1: Oh, what, what a, you're a great interviewer. President Feingold. I appreciate the questions. Yeah, these are great. Thank you. Um, you know, I think, so I'll, I'll, I'll say my music training education. Oh, really ah, there you helped. go. Yeah. yeah. Um, there is, in music, especially what you're conveying to the audience has to be passionate. It has to be, you have to be disciplined and and the practice does not always make perfect. And you're always going back to the woodshed, as we called it, right? To, you know, work out a passage or, figure out something with your embouchure or, or improve the musicality of a certain phrase or, or piece. And I I never put the two together until one of my mentors, who was a college president, said, y- you know, that's the best training you could ever have for a presidency. And I'm like, I'm not going to be a college president. He goes, you will be one day. I'm like, no, 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 I can't do it. Um and and he was right. I think there's a lot to it in that respect uh, that that really serves in terms of the skills, qualities, attributes that have been helpful to me. And you know, like you, I think any leader goes in thinking they know everything. Uh, they're bound to fail. And I think a lot of humility comes from. Uh, I see you in this way. I, I, I love how you uh, lead your institution. I, I I feel very much like that music training. You get real. You, you get real humbled real fast when you realize you know you're, you know, in that respect. The other the other thing you brought up residential life and and student affairs broadly, right. So many presidents who come from the academic side of the house, if you will. And there's is, this is not to disparage that because it's so important that we have academically focused presidents. But I feel what really help, helped me is that I had sort of a both-and opportunity. And I have this real passion for advocating for students and for their well-being and their, their ultimate experience. We always get it right? No. But I think what I brought from residential life was this this deep desire to ensure that the student experience was was front and center and while i love the faculty i think sometimes uh, you know our faculty and i'm not talking saybrook faculty i'm talking collectively Forget about that interplay of student life and leadership that's so important to the vibrancy. And I would say that's even true at the graduate level. That interconnection, it's shown in the research, keeps students connected, keeps them happier. There's out, There are outlets for engagement. Um, and then lastly, I'll, I'll just kind of follow your bullet points here around the mentorship, Um I had really three great mentors uh, uh, throughout my time in terms of this type of role. And, and I'll I'll name them because I think they're really powerful individuals. Uh, Leo Kraskowski, who is my, one of my doctoral advisors. uh, And he was a noted historian of college president uh, uh, of some fame in Minnesota. And then also a a dean of a a UC college uh, here, out here. And his wisdom and his, uh, desire to take care of his people, as he called, you know, as he would say, like you take care of your people first, you know, and how important that is. So that was a big takeaway and do your very best despite all the pressures. The second individual is James Vitruba, who is president of Northern Kentucky university, who, uh, while he was president there helped me in my interim and, and presidency in Cincinnati. And his focus was all about, how do you grow an institution responsibly and always thinking about the strategic impacts that can, that need to happen in order to keep that growth uh, moving forward? And then Kurt McRae, who uh, worked with me, I asked him to work with me for about a year and a half, two years, and I have never met, he's a four-time college president. That man still remembers his budgets from Cal State Long Beach uh, down to the last line item, and he would... Uh, you know, a- a- he ca- he called it annotating his budget. And I thought this is the most insane thing possible. Um, he would redline everything and go, do we need this? Do we need this? Is this supporting students and student learning? And it would drive probably people to distraction. But at the end of the day, what I learned from that is if, if you don't know your budget, if you don't know what you're doing, you don't know where your priorities are. You might be able to say to your CFO, these are the things I want to focus on. But that granularity, it sounds like it would take a long time. It actually doesn't. And and the important thing is it gives you a, a level of not so much control, but um, a glo- it helps you to rise back up into the global strategic focus to get the things done that matter most. So those were kind of the three big mentors. And then Dr. Horowitz, uh, as a fourth final, he has been just a tremendous advocate and support through my time here. Uh, at Saybrook. And, uh, you know, for everything from, you know, how to go about doing one thing differently or thinking about things in a unique new way, his innovative uh, entrepreneurial spirit has been really great.
0: Just to lend uh, support for your musician, uh, the importance of that, I think of all of the presidents I've had the privilege to speak to for the podcast by far the longest serving is leon botstein who yes, started in 1975 <laughs> at bard college and has managed to conduct two symphony orchestras full-time while doing that for going on 50 years it's,
1: it's i mean <clears throat> he he is my yeah he, he's my uh like uh the guy i aim to be but i'll never be i mean he's just got <laughs> that's incredible all right uh, it's yeah. awesome yeah.
0: So I, I'm curious, what, what, what has been the, the greatest challenge that you've faced either in, in your prior presidency or here in terms of, you know, that you've had to confront it? how How did you go about solving?
1: So I think that, you know, the greatest challenge, and this is going to be true, I think, for a lot of smaller nonprofit privates, is always the challenge of, um, you know, brand penetration making sure your brand is getting out above the noise sustaining those enrollments and maintaining a strong financial infrastructure to keep moving forward right um and i i would say those are the things that always you know keep it it's always the overused tired phrase keep you up at night right but yeah that's that's one of those things or three of those things and i think they work hand in glove um and i think you know for for me and i think for a lot of presidents who focus on the brand and the marketing piece, much like you're doing with this podcast. It has a, a meaningful impact to Chatham university's, you know, footprint, even though you may not think it does right away, it does over time, similar to what we're doing at Saybrook, whether it's our Saybrook insights podcast or uh, the work we're doing out in the community, that brand penetration, that, that expansion of that is so critical. Um, but, but you, we have to be working at it day in and day out. So, uh, for me, in solving for that, I work with our le- our marketing leadership team, our social media teams. Um, I'm on social media con- constantly, continuously. I'm working on the podcast. Um, I'm also working with our department chairs who want to do this, and our our VPAA is doing this as well. How do we continue to also build the programmatic? marketing, the brands for each of the programs that kind of tie in so that we can keep that engine moving. The enrollment piece and the finance piece, all of these are tied together. And I think how we solve for that, and you may find one solution one year that works well, and then you have to go back to the, the woodshed as the musicians have to do, right? And go, okay, that worked, but what else do we need to do differently? So I think for us, it's about being adaptive and flexible and recognizing that what we did one year or two years ago, may not necessarily be what we need to do this coming year, right? And I think a lot of, and again, a lot of smaller nonprofit privates, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think they fall into the trap of, we'll just keep replicating, right? But what we've seen this year is a complete upending of the marketplace with big institutions buying up all sorts of online ad space. So we have to be aggressive in different ways to get out there and really get our word out there about what we offer and what we do as an institution. So I would say how we're solving for that is being adaptive, flexible, and aggressively vigilant in the most positive of ways.
0: Great. Um, Just to wrap up, uh, I would love if you would think about any sort of parting advice you'd have for either Folks who are new college presidents who've just just come into the role or those who might be thinking about it as, as something that they want to do in their
1: career. Yeah, great, great, great. Um, get a network of fellow college presidents and sign a pact, whatever you got to do to say, this is a cone of silence and we need to have an opportunity to just get it out there. We've heard the term or phrase before it's a lonely job. It is it can be lonely, but it doesn't have to be. And I think we you know sometimes live in that space of you know, I'm stuck in this uh, moment uh, of just being alone and trying to make these decisions and and suffering in silence, you know, and I think rather than suffering in silence, getting that network together, talking to David Feingold, getting him in a, in a little, in a small group or me or whomever. Right. Um, and, and, and really sussing out all the the issues that you might be having. Um, and it doesn't have to be long. It's an hour every two weeks or what have you. The second thing I'd recommend is, is get a mentor. So in addition to your network, get a mentor, but an, a mentor who will challenge you, um, we all like to hear how great we are. I think the mentors I've had in my life have told me, you're not doing this right, or you need to do this differently, or better think about this differently. And I don't know, maybe again, it's going back to the music thing. I I like that critique, respectful critique, not, you know, uh, berating or, or, or that nature, but the best coaches, the best mentors are those who are willing to tell you how it is, but also be your biggest cheerleader. And so I would say in your early presidency, especially, find that person, um, glom onto them and and really lean into them for support and guidance. Um, and I think the third thing would be annotate your budget. <laughs> <Right> <laughs> like, I, I've met actually a few college presidents over the last year and a half who have a very limited understanding of where their money is going. And it's just like our home budgets. Uh, if you don't know where your money's going, you're you're broke, you're 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 in debt or what have you. Um, it's an important tool. And so, if you want to learn more about that, I'm happy to talk to you about how you can do that. But I think those are the key pieces: is getting that support, the mentorship, and and knowing your your budget inside and out.
0: Well, Nathan, thank you so much for taking the time and the, the wonderful insights you've shared. Congrats on the great successes at Saybrook, and hope you have a great academic year ahead.
1: Uh, thank you, sir. Appreciate it very much.